0: Thank you, Henry. The arena really is prayer. The solution doesn't reside in money, doesn't reside in anything else. It resides in people who are praying, who are moving in concert with what God wants to do. And it's vitally important, as we talked last week about walls and barriers and difficulties and stretching. We've encountered this for three years, uh, and we anticipate certainly much more, and I, with all my heart, believe that God wants us praying. God wants us committed to him and seeking out his will. The Bible says submit yourself to the Lord, surrender yourself to him, the devil will flee. He'll vacate the premises and the way will be open. So we've got to submit ourselves to the Lord. Let's look at the fifth chapter of Romans. <clears throat> if you've been following Paul's argument, if you've been following his line of thinking uh, through these early chapters in Romans, just by way of reflection quickly, we've seen that he's introduced himself, he's introduced the bad news, and then he introduces the good news, which counters the bad news. The good news comes in the person of Jesus Christ. That God's wrath can be averted, God's wrath can be avoided by anyone and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ took God's wrath on the cross for each and every person who trusts in Christ, who professes the name of Christ, who looks to Christ as his personal Savior. That's the good news. Now, the, the issue becomes, well, exactly how do I do this now? Paul's response is by faith, faith alone, believing in Christ, that Christ died for our sins. He's the one final sacrifice. And remember, this derives out of the whole uh, Jewish experience, the whole Jewish picture of continually sacrificing. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews says. That no longer does the high priest have to continue to enter in to the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice to sprinkle the blood for remission of sins, but Christ has offered the one final sacrifice, God's Son. For all men, pays the price. His death has eternal significance and consequence because he, in fact, is eternal. And his death, on our behalf, wards off God's wrath for us. Now Paul says, and the way to get to God is through believing what he has said. And he points up, and he illustrates this by faith alone, by believing God, in the fourth chapter of Romans, he devotes that whole chapter to illustrating, and he uses the life of Abraham, who is the father not only of all of literal Israel, physical Jewish people, but he is the father of spiritual Israel, those who believe God. That's what Paul says. And so he illustrates from Abraham's life that Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He took God at his word and acted on it. It wasn't that he believed God plus something else was necessary. He believed God. And he, he uses, devotes the whole fourth chapter to illustrating that salvation is a, a result of people putting their faith in God, believing in Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes God's solution to man's dilemma. Now that gives rise to another question. Paul, you say that believing is sufficient. I hear what you say, but I, you know, I, my confidence is not quite there yet. Is believing really sufficient? Is believing going to hold me? When I get there, when I stand before God and he says, why should I let you in? Are you sure that I don't have to point to all my good works? Are you sure that I don't have to point to keeping the law? Are you sure that I don't have to point to my own personal righteousness? Paul says, no, none of that counts. We already proved that through Abraham's life. What counts is that you stand there and you say, I believe what you said about Jesus, and I put my faith in him, and I stood in faith. It's faith alone. And to that end, to that effect, Paul writes the fifth Indeed, the 6th, 7th, and 8th chapters of Romans to illustrate the great truth that salvation comes when people believe God. They believe what he says and what he says about his provision for their salvation, Christ. He is the end all. He's it. Jesus is all there is. He is all there is. Believing. Well, okay, Paul, if you say so, but can you give me some assurance? Can you help me feel a little bit stronger? Give me some evidence. Give me something that I can hold on to that that helps me to believe that believing is sufficient. Now, we've been talking, since we started the fifth chapter, we've been talking about the benefits of believing. And really, they're more than benefits. They're not only benefits, but they are really assurances of believing. Yes, if I put my faith in Jesus, that'll see me through. I put myself in God's hands, I've done what He has said, and that is sufficient to see me through to the end and on into eternity. I can rest in that. I can trust that. Now, I don't know about you, but as a human being... I always have to do this checking, reexamining, making sure, because in my flesh, I want some kind of physical reassurance, I want some kind of substantial thing to kind of hang on to, that kind of gives me guarantee, and we're going to talk about that, that there is some of that, but bottom line, it's believing God. And I come back to that point over and over and over, I say, okay, I, that's right, I, I put my faith in Jesus, I believe Him, I trust Him, I put my life in His hands, I'm saved. I see the fruit of it in my life, I'm saved. See, and I have to come back to that fairly regularly just to be reminded and be encouraged and strengthened. Rehearse that. It's helpful. Paul says in the fifth chapter, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been declared not guilty in God's eyes, And since we've been made righteous by Him through Christ, we now have peace with God. That's the first great benefit. That's the first great assurance of salvation. We have peace with God. Paul tells us we're at peace with Him. And He's at peace with us. Before, there was no peace. We were at war. And whether or not a person is consciously aware that there's war between them and God or that they're at war with God, the real issue is that God is at war with them. In Psalm 7, verse 11, David says this. He says that God is angry with the wicked every day. He's at war with them every day. But we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, he says now we can enter into his grace. And remember the picture, the the Jews could not enter in except once a year enter into God's presence. And that only the high priest could do. And all the people would wait outside with bated breath to make sure that the high priest was still alive so he could come out. That the sacrifice was acceptable to God. That was the one day they had access to God. And the writer to the Hebrews says, Now we enter into his throne room with confidence, boldly. We have access to grace. We stand in grace. What do we say about grace? It's only necessary when there's sin around. Isn't that true? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you're perfect and you don't sin, you don't need any grace, right? Sure. Isn't it nice to have people in your life who are gracious to you? Not people who just put up with you. Not people who just tolerate you. But people who are genuinely gracious to you and they know you. Isn't that lovely? They know you. They're gracious And even in the face of your ingraciousness, even in the face of your foolishness, they are still gracious to you. They still accept you and love you. They still embrace you. Oh, how we long for that. How we long to experience that every day. There's a hunger in our hearts for that, isn't there? Paul says we have God's grace through Christ. We stand in it. We're immersed in it. And if you sin, if you disobey, if you fall away, even intentionally, God does not kick you out. He still is gracious to you. You still stand in grace. And not only that, he says, because we have peace with God, because we stand in grace, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see how each one leads to the next... When you understand you have peace with God, and you understand you have access to God, He just is gracious to you, there's no end to His grace. Then the very next thing, the very next thought is that you begin to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, we're secure. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are secure. Believing is sufficient. You're secure because you have peace with God. You're secure because you stand in grace. And you're secure because God has saved you and preserves you for glory. That's security. Would you agree with me? That is really security. That gives us great relief. Great pause for relief. No more having to work for it. No more having to worry about it. No more having to think, oh no, I just sinned. does God mad at me? Is he going to kick me out now? Oh, what do I have to do? No more of that. No more uncertainty. God has saved us by faith. And if salvation is not salvation, if you can lose it, then it's not salvation. Isn't that true? It's either salvation or it's not. Either you have it or you don't. There's no in-between ground. This is great news. I'm secure. I'm secure. That's great. And you know what? That doesn't create in me a sense of license to go do what I want. That creates in me a sense of loyalty. That works to create in me a sense of incredible response to God. God's done that in me. I didn't do that. He's created that in me. I'm relieved. That's good news. Why is that good news? Because we're really talking about God's faithfulness. Let me put that in relief. Let Let me... illustrate what I'm talking about you grasp this we live in a day we live in an age of great unfaithfulness do we not I mean every place you look people can't be trusted true people aren't what they purport to be they don't keep their word they're not trustworthy husbands abandoning wives unfaithful to their wives wives unfaithful to their husbands every place it's all over And if they're not unfaithful physically, they're certainly unfaithful mentally. Parents abandoning children. We have an epidemic of fathers abandoning wives and children. Abandoning them. Wives abandoning husbands and children too. It's all over the place. And if, not, if, if it's not physical abandonment, though they may still be presently living in the home, you, you see parents abandoning their kids right there in the context of the home. You see fathers abandoning their role as leaders in the home, as protectors and providers. You see fathers abandoning their, their responsibility to train up those children, to teach them, and to live responsibly before them. You see mothers doing the same thing. You see mothers openly rebellious in the home. And children picking that up. Kids learn by not so much being taught, by catching stuff from us as parents. And so you see unfaithfulness in the home. You see unfaithfulness in the workplace. There's employers who are unfaithful to employees. Employees who are unfaithful to employers. The proverbial coming late, leaving early. Taking longer lunches. Stealing paper clips and pencils. It's all unfaithfulness. There is not a single human being that can claim immunity from the great sin of unfaithfulness. It's all around us. It's every place. It even infects the church. Did you know that? Yeah. Even as Christians, we're afflicted with unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to God. Now, does God condemn us? Is he mad at us? No. That's why he had to die for us. <laughs> so that he could forgive us, so that he could embrace us even in the face of our unfaithfulness. That astounds me. Friday evening after the service, I had a man come up to me, big burly guy. Stood there and said, I need to talk to you. He was kind of serious. So I puffed myself up to be just (laughs) as big as he was. (laughs) Then I was relieved because then he started to cry. I thought, well, this works pretty good. <laughs> that wasn't the reason he was crying. He was crying. He said, you know, he said, God, God spoke to my heart. God convicted me of something tonight. When you're start, when you talking about unfaithfulness, when you're talking about unfaithfulness, God convicted me of my heart. I said, how is that? He said, because I've been an unfaithful man. I, I, I believe in Jesus. I've, I, I've been coming here for a year. I've been saved for a little over a year. But but I've been an unfaithful man as a Christian." I said, we all have been. You're not alone. He said, yes, I understand that. He said, but I've been particularly unfaithful and I want to confess my sin. And so I said, all right. And he said, I've been a stingy man. I've been a selfish man. I've hoarded my money. And I've been stingy and selfish and unwilling to give my money God. And God's spirit, and I didn't say a word about money. He says, God's spirit convicted me profoundly. And he right there wrote out this big fat check. I said, you don't need to do that. That's between you and the Lord. He said, no, he says, I need to hold myself accountable to you. And he said, and I've been so stingy for so long that I'm going to continue to write out these checks. I said, you don't need to make anything up. Jesus has made it all up already on the cross. Just be faithful from today on. Serve God where he calls you to serve him. You're growing. You're maturing. That's great. But for him, it was a matter of conscience. And I said, well, okay, I won't fight you. Write it to call to grow. <laughs> But it was exciting. Even in the church there's unfaithfulness. Isn't that true? Yes. Does that put God off? No. He still loves the church. What are the alternatives to the church? You know, the church is still the best thing going. The only other alternative is the world. You know, the church can be pretty stinky inside, can't it? The church is kind of like Noah's Ark. (laughs) <laughs> it got real stinky in that ark after a year. <laughs> and the church is kind of like that. It gets real stinky sometimes in the church, but comparison, compared to the alternative, church is great. Noah would have much rather been, been in the ark than outside where the storm was. As bad as the church can be sometimes, I'd much rather be inside than out there in the world, out there in the cold. And though there is unfaithfulness even in the church, God does not throw the church away. He saved us to keep us. And he's working in us to redeem us every day more and more. Every day to make us more like Jesus. Oh, how glorious. So the issue is faithfulness. God's faithfulness. And we can trust in God's faithfulness. We can trust God. God is not like men. God keeps his word. He does what he says he'll do. He's faithful. When you put your trust in him, he will complete the work that he's begun in your life. That work of transformation, that work of salvation, so that you might hope, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God being revealed. And you might also rejoice in your suffering. Because when you have a a rejoicing hope in God's glory, As you suffer and as you have various trials in your life, your focus is on him and so you're going to be rejoicing. Because why? You know that the suffering, God is using it. We talked about that last week. God is faithful. And it's upon his faithfulness that everything we believe is based. God must be able to be believed. If not, then we have nothing to trust in. There's no rock. There's nothing. There's no hope. I grew up in my life from a little child, and I can remember this very, very, like it it was just yesterday. I grew up believing and hoping that there was one thing, there was one person that I could trust in. That there was one entity that I could rest in that wouldn't leave me down, that wouldn't break me, that wouldn't, and we're going to talk about being disappointed, that wouldn't disappoint me. One thing, I was raised religious, but no one bothered to take the Bible and open up the Bible and show me God's faithfulness over and over and over. No one taught me, no one showed me. No one showed me God's faithfulness in Christ and his incredible love. We'll talk more about that this morning and next week. God's love. No one ever showed it to me. I knew it was there, I knew there had to be something. And I searched here, I searched there, I went after this thing, I went after that thing. Someplace, there had to be some refuge, someplace where I could rest. Where I wouldn't have to constantly be on my guard. Where I wouldn't have to worry. Where I wouldn't have to be afraid. Someplace I could rest. Somebody I could trust. Somebody who wouldn't let me down. When I became a Christian ten years ago, When God opened my eyes to Jesus Christ, I went, whoa. I knew him all along, but I never saw him in that light. That he became my refuge. And for the past ten years, as I've grown and matured as a Christian, oh, I've known more and more the sweetness of Jesus and the safety. And even in the midst of my struggles and my sufferings and my tribulation, God has proved faithful to me. He's proved faithful to me. He's never once let me down. God is faithful. The Bible says it. Isaiah in the 11th chapter writes about God's faithfulness. He says that God's faithfulness is the belt around his waist, is the sash which holds it all together. Read that. That's a marvelous passage in the 11th chapter of Isaiah. In Deuteronomy, the law says that God, our God, is a faithful God. Paul writes to Timothy that God remains faithful, that he cannot deny himself, it is his nature to be true to his word, and so he is and so he will be. In Philippians he says what he has begun, he will finish. In Jeremiah, lovely passage, in the book of Lamentations, the third chapter, verse 23, Jeremiah the prophet, Israel is off in captivity in Babylon, horrible time of suffering. Great travail. And you know what Jeremiah says? In the depth of the suffering of Israel, Jeremiah says, Great is your faithfulness. Talk about rejoicing and suffering. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that lovely? God is faithful. Turn with me to First Thess- uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to have you read a passage with me that I think is astounding. This is probably, if not the greatest, certainly one of the greatest testimonies to God's faithfulness and the security of the believer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, May God Himself, the God of peace, there it is again, we're at peace with God. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. Guess what? Through and through. What's that mean? May he make you perfect. Through and through. No flaw. Who's going to do it? God. What's he going to do? Sanctify you through and through. Is there any hint there that you've got to do something? No. God's going to do it. Does that give you security? Yes. May the God of peace, may he himself, sanctify you through and through. Now look at this. He says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we don't have the next verse, then you could be led to believe that if that's all we had, may your whole soul, spirit, and body be kept blameless until the coming of Jesus Christ. You could be left thinking, well, maybe that's my part. Maybe I should be making myself blameless. Maybe I should be sanctifying myself. That's why Paul writes now the next verse. Look at this. He says, the one who calls you. Now, who is that? God. The one who calls you. The one who foreknew you. The one who called you. The one who justified you indeed in Romans 8. The one who has glorified you. The one who has called you, he says, is faithful. And he will do it. He'll do it. You can rest. Believing is sufficient. God has begun a work and he's going to complete it because you put your faith in Jesus. Jesus is God's provision for healing and for eternity to all those who believe. Now, look with me at the fifth verse of the fifth chapter of Romans. That was the introduction. Now let's get to the message. Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings. He says, why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character what? Hope. You see, for the believer. The believer undergoes suffering, and in that suffering is only produced a greater hope. In Hebrews, the sixth chapter, says that this hope is an anchor for our soul. It stabilizes us. Our hope is not some kind of weak, puny desire. It's a strong hope. It's a fundamental belief. It's a calm assurance. And all suffering does is increase that calm assurance for the believer. God's working in our life to do it. Now look what he says. He says this profound thing in the fifth verse. We've got hope as a result of suffering. He says, and hope does not what? Does not disappoint. God doesn't let us down. He's faithful. The hope that God, that comes as a result of God pouring out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit has been given to us, that hope does not disappoint. Does not disappoint. Doesn't make us ashamed. God's hope. The first hopes of life come to us as children, don't they? Oh, we come into this world and we begin to grow up and we have all kinds of hopes, all kinds of wants and desires. But they're human hopes. And it's not very long before we begin to realize and understand that everything we want, we don't get. That our little hopes are crushed. Really? I mean, we've got to You just look around. Everybody in this room, you've had hopes in your life all the way up to the point where you are today that have been crushed, haven't they? You've been let down. You've been disappointed in your lifetime. Not so with God's hope. God's hope does not disappoint. And even though you may have gotten what you wanted, you find out very quickly that though you got what you wanted, it doesn't produce the joy that you thought it would. There are people getting involved in relationships, and they're so hungry for a relationship they're just jumping into them right and left and going to bed with people, and they're not getting what they thought they would getting. And sadly, they find out when it's too late. If you're thinking about getting married, wait, pray, do it God's way. Get to know what God's way is, and then follow His way because it's only going to produce fruit in your life, not bad fruit, good fruit. But you see, we've been let down horribly, disappointed. Every one of us are bearing the fruit in our life today of past disappointments. As children, our hopes were crushed by people, some well-meaning, some not so well-meaning. Some of the things we longed for and hoped for, even our parents let us down in some very critical areas. And for very many of us, our spirits just closed right up. You look around and you see people who just don't know how to communicate, people who who don't know how to open up, people who are afraid, people who are grossly insecure, people who feel so inadequate that it just kills them. You know why? It's because their spirits have been closed, because they've been disappointed, because they've been crushed. Even as adults, there's so many walking wounded, it makes your heart ache and cry because of the hopes that have been crushed the hopes that have been disappointed. And right along with that, with worldly hope, human hope, comes fear, doesn't there? Worldly hope and fear are really inseparable. Oh, you may step out one time. You may say, well, I'm going to take a chance here. I'm going to take a chance on this person. And as you step out and take a chance, and if you should get burned, immediately you step back and you say, I knew it, that's the last time I do that. True? Sure. Sadly, people translate that to God. They translate their understanding of faithlessness in men to God. They say, can God be trusted? Do I dare put my life in his hands? Do I dare rely on him solely? Is Jesus enough? Can I really believe this? The whole point is yes. God is not like men. He will not disappoint you as men disappoint you. I had this letter. This lady wrote me a letter. Just burned, ticked, inflamed, mad at me. And she gets to this ranting and raving in this letter and finally gets down to the last paragraph and the whole reason she's mad at me is because I didn't hug her at the top of the stairs. I wrote her back. I said, please forgive me. I really, truly am sorry. I said, but you're you're trusting me and I'll let you down. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to focus on Jesus. If you're looking to me, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Talk to my wife. (laughs) It's a wonder she still stands there with me. God bless her. I love her with all my heart. But I'm I'm just flesh and blood. I'm just another man, typical man, insensitive, dumb. I don't know. Expect me to read your mind. Most of us guys respond that way, don't we? God's hope doesn't disappoint, though we disappoint one another. And we become afraid, we don't want to open up, we won't share. We won't step out there again. But God, you can trust in God, and even though you suffer, you can rejoice in the suffering because you have, your faith is in Him. You believe in Him, you trust him, that He has a good purpose and a good end for that suffering. We talked about that last week. It's either constructive or it's corrective, or it's what? Exemplary. He puts you on display. gives you an opportunity to be displayed. That you might grow in faithfulness and trust him. A hope which fails causes one to be ashamed, but the hope which is based in the promise of God is assured of fulfillment. There it is, right there. Even the disciplines of suffering teach us that hope does not disappoint. When you go through suffering and God proves his faithfulness to you again, you have history with God. You look back, and oftentimes the 2020 hindsight and you say, Oh, wow, I see what God did. And you're thankful. But it gives you history. It gives you opportunity that when the next suffering comes, you can be thankful and you can trust him in the midst of it. And because of it, why? Because he was faithful to you there, he'll be faithful to you here. And it gives you hope for the future, that when suffering comes in the future, you can be thankful. You can be praising him, even because of the suffering. Why? Because God can be depended on. He's not faithful. He's not like men. Hope does not disappoint the hope that God builds into us. It does not disappoint, doesn't let us down. There's a passage in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter one. Let me just tell you quickly what he says. I want you to read it though later. The setting is such as this. Paul writes to this young pastor. Timothy is not sure, he doesn't have a total firm grasp on the faith. His picture, his understanding of the Christian faith is not matured to the point where he understands and can grasp difficulties and how they fit in. And so he's confronted with Paul being carted off to prison in Rome. He's confronted with Paul being in chains and going to be beheaded. And there are people surrounding him, both in the church and outside the church, who are saying, well, Timothy, you're talking about God, and we can trust God. Look what's happened to Paul. Can I trust God? Am I going to be carted off to prison? I thought God was going to protect me. I thought my life was going to be rosy. It was going to be better. What about God? Paul writes letters to those like that, huh? And so he says in this letter to Timothy... He says, you know, Tim, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, and don't be ashamed of me because of my chains. It's for this reason, for the sake of the gospel, that I'm imprisoned, and I rejoice in my chains, and you rejoice also with me. You see, when you begin to mature as a Christian, when you begin to understand that becoming a Christian doesn't mean you get a pink Cadillac, Becoming a Christian means that you enter into a whole new life. A life that you yield yourself to God for his purposes. And as Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. We are expendable in this life. Our hope is not here. Our hope is where? There. And as you mature as a Christian, the things of this world begin to grow strangely dim. You have less and less of a firm hold on this life. I was talking to... Uh, A gal yesterday, we were talking about this airplane that crashed last week, and that little five-year-old girl that survived. You know, and and from a human perspective, that's a great miracle, isn't it? That five-year-old girl survived. And I began to think about that, and this girl was telling, we were talking about that, and she said, isn't it a wonder, Isn't isn't it a miracle how God chooses to save some so that they might live? And all of a sudden, came crashing into my understanding was this. If, if I was a Christian, which I am, if I was in a plane crash, I would not want God to save me to live. <laughs> I would got, want God to save me to live. Big difference, huh? Man, I don't want someone to put me in a hospital. I don't want them to grow all the skin grafts. I don't want to do all that stuff. God will take care of my wife and my son. I'm confident of that. He'll take care of you guys, too. I want to go home. I want to go home. But you see, the perspective, the perspective is what? Is it earthly or is it heavenly? If you're hoping in God, no matter what happens, you won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. If you're hoping in this life, and if this life is your home base, you're going to be disappointed when trials and struggles come into your life. And so Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. He says in the first chapter of Romans, the 16th verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of God's good news. Because God's good news, the gospel is sufficient. That's all we need. Why? Because when people believe what God says, He transforms their life. He does it. They don't do it. God does it. And I'm not ashamed to tell people about that. I'm not embarrassed by that. Because if there's anything that people need, it's hope. If there's anything that people need, is to have their lives changed. If there's anything that people need, is to feel secure and safe. And God says, you put your faith in Jesus, and all of that will be given to you. So you can see why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's not the gospel plus endless hours of therapy. It's not the gospel plus counseling. It's not the gospel plus something else. It's the gospel. I have seen people miraculously transformed in front of my eyes when they have heard the truth and they have abandoned themselves to Christ. Delivered, transformed, miraculously, right in front of my eyes. And yet I see so many people laboring. They're not experiencing the transformation because they're still holding on. They've not abandoned, they've not surrendered themselves because they don't believe. They don't really believe that believing is sufficient. They don't really believe that Jesus will be faithful. They don't really believe if they step out there in that thin air of faith that God's hands will be under them and will keep them held up. They think, if I let go and if I stand out there, I'm for sure going down. And so they trust in all this other stuff. Not Jesus. Hope does not disappoint. Does not disappoint. Why doesn't it disappoint? He, oh, look at what he says. He says, because, because God pours out his love. He what? He pours it out. He pours it out where? Into my brain? Into my intellect? No. Where does he pour it? Into my heart. Here's another incredible assurance Here's another incredible benefit. Here's another incredible piece of evidence. This is from the subjective side. The Holy Spirit, who's been given to us, takes all of this out of the intellectual arena now and brings it to us in the emotional arena. He says, God pours out his love into my heart by the Holy Spirit, who's been given to me. Pours it out. He doesn't just dole it out with an eyedropper. As some of us feel. True? Like God is stingy with his love? Doesn't Jesus say in John's Gospel, he says, He says, When when you get my spirit, boy, out of your innermost beings are gonna pour out what? Rivers of living water. Not little tiny trickles, rivers. You're not gonna be able to contain it. I'd love to meet more Christians. Out of whom are pouring rivers of living water. I'd love to meet more Christians who are filled with the love of God to overflowing. Pours out his love into our hearts. God assures me that I'm His. He assures me that He saved me. He assures me that I belong to Him. He assures me that I possess His love. He assures me that He has drawn me into a love relationship with Him that will last throughout eternity. He does it by His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit gives me the sense and the awareness that God loves me. You ever been in love? How many people have been in love? Isn't it lovely? Isn't it lovely to be in love? Don't you love being in love? John, have you ever been in love? Yeah, you better. Kate's right there. Yeah. <laughs> she looks over. She says, you better raise your hand. <laughs> You've been in love. Isn't it lovely to be in love? Oh, isn't it lovely to receive love? Oh, wonderful, isn't it? How about this? You know, someone says to you, they come up and they say, Adam, I love you. That ought to do it. Now, of course, Adam, being very rational, logical, reasonable, says, well, okay, that's it. That settles it. Right? We don't need any more. Is that true? No. (laughs) Oh, I want to love. (laughs) I want to feel it. It's nice for him to tell me, but don't I want to feel it? Oh, that helps, doesn't it? Is just believing when someone tells you they love you, Is is that sufficient? How many would like to feel it? How many need to feel it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, God made us emotional beings as well as intellectual beings. We're not only objective, but we're subjective. We have a whole component to our nature that God addresses. He doesn't ignore. And how he addresses that is by his Spirit who's given into us. He addresses the very internal reality of our need to feel and experience his love. And so he pours out his love. Now, just as in a human relationship, to experience someone's love, to really feel it, to be warmed by it, don't you have to be posturing towards it? Don't you have to be in a posture? Don't you have to be in a position towards it to receive it? How many times when a young couple, they meet and they can't, oh, they just can't stay away from each other. They're calling on the phone every day, and and then they get married, they get engaged, they get married, and it's three, four years down the road, right? And the young bride says, you used to be so romantic. You used to love to hold me and stroke my hair and tell me how beautiful I am. You used to sit there and play the guitar to me and sing to me. <laughs> I used to feel your love. What happened? <laughs> oh, the posture's changed. The posture's changed. You see, for us to feel God's love, we've got to be, we've got to be towards him. Huh? We've got to be open to him. In order for you to feel this love from coming from somebody else, you've got to be open to them. If you're not open to them, if you're turned away from them, they could pour out their love till the cows come home, but you'll never feel it until you turn to them and open yourself to them. I don't feel God's love. I hear what you say, but I don't feel God's love. You know why? Because you're not turned to him. Paul says in Galatians, the fifth chapter the 22nd verse, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. First of all, it's love. What kind of love? Romantic love? No. That's eros, the Greek word eros, meaning in which we get the word erotic. That means, essentially, it's all take. It's not Philadelphia kind of love, philia, brother love, that's give and take. It's agape love. It's the kind of love that is all give. Agape love. God pours out His love. He pours out His love that I might experience it, that my heart, my life might be filled with His love. But I don't feel it. Then turn to God. Well, I've tried. You confessed your sin? Well, I I guess so. I don't know. You know, we, do, we have this habit. We, we quickly go down the list, don't we, Ten Commandments? And we don't find any gross violations, and we say, well, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. But what we don't realize, and what we're unwilling to acknowledge, is that we bury a whole bunch of stuff. We don't want to sit let this stuff surface, because I can't stand to see how gross I am. And so it requires that I spend some quiet time with God. It requires that I say, oh, Lord... Lord, search my heart and show me if there be any hurtful way in me. Now, God's not going to just ream up a whole bunch of stuff. But the issues that he knows that he wants you to deal with first, he's going to bring up. And what, you, what are you doing? You're posturing towards God. You're turning towards God. You're, you're being open to God. And he's continued to pour out his love. He never stopped. But now you're in a place where you can receive it. And receiving it, you're able to feel it to experience God's love. God, show me if there be any hurtful way in me. Search my heart, Lord, so that I don't quench the Spirit and choke off the flow of your love to me. When you quench the Spirit, you quench it by grieving God's Spirit, by sin, uh, unconfessed sin, rebellion, unforgiveness those things that we don't want to deal with, that we don't want to acknowledge, but that we must if we want to experience God's love. In Ephesians, the third chapter, turn there with me. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 14. We'll be done in just a couple of minutes here. I want you to see something powerful. I want you to see how Paul prays, not only for the Ephesian believers, but also for us. This is an astounding thing. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So you can see this picture of Paul kneeling before God, praying. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? Well, I need strength. I need his power to confront and deal with the issues that are causing the choking off of his love, his fruit. So the first thing is Paul prays for power, power of God's spirit in the inner being that I might deal with these issues. That I might acknowledge them and I might confess them. And then he prays this, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, He says that you were rooted. You became a believer because of God's love. God established you. He rooted you in his love. You're firmly established. But that's not enough. He says, I pray that you may have power together with all the saints. Now, look at this. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I want you to grasp this. God wants you to grasp it. That word grasp has has contained in it every possible means, every possible avenue of understanding, not only intellectually, but experientially. I want you to grasp the overwhelming dimensions of God's love. That's what he prays for. God means for us to experience his love, the love that he pours out into our hearts, the love that is reassuring, the love that confirms to us experientially that he's trustworthy, that he saved us, that we're secure that we're secure. And look at this. He says this. He says, And to know, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I don't want you just to know it with your knowledge, with your intellect. I want you to know it intimately. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. Look at it. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Filled to the fullness of all the fullness of who, man? Does God want us filled with love according to our measure? No. He wants us filled according to his measure. To all the fullness of God. (laughs) I have no category for that. I have no category for that. God wants to fill me up to overflowing so that it just blows me away. You ever been blown away by love? That's what God wants to do. How has all this come to pass? By the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. If God didn't love me, would he give me his Holy Spirit? No. The fact that I possess the Holy Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in me, as Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans, as he says in Corinthians, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. it's by that Holy Spirit that we become aware, that we begin to sense and we begin to experience the love of God. God's Spirit makes it real to us. It's nothing we do. We turn to Him, we respond to what He does in our life, and He makes His love real to us and overwhelms us with it. The unbeliever will never experience the love of God. The unbeliever will never know the hope that you know. The unbeliever could never rejoice like you rejoice. Why? Because they don't have God's Spirit living in them. This doesn't make sense to them. Their eyes aren't open. It sounds nice, but it's not real to them. If only it could be. Many a time I was talking to this guy the other day, and he was telling me that God loves him, and I said, how do you know? He said, well, I, I just believe that God loves me. And I said, well, how do you know? Do you, have you ever experienced God's love? Have you ever felt it? And he said, well, yeah. And I was a little perplexed until later on it began to dawn on me that he's never really known or felt God's love. He's experienced God's goodness. God's grace to him, God's common grace. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's experienced God's goodness, but not his overwhelming love. Because he doesn't have his Holy Spirit living in him. Every born-again, true, believing Christian has God's Spirit living in them. The scriptures are adamant about that. You say, well, now wait a minute. You say that if I am a Christian, I have God's Spirit living in me. If that's true, will God take his Spirit away from me? No, Paul says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee of our final redemption. Well, wait a minute. You're saying that that God will never take His Holy Spirit away from me? No. What about that verse in Psalm 51? When David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. What does that mean? It means this. David prayed that God would not do to him what he saw do to Saul. Saul was an unrighteous king, and God removed his spirit from Saul and anointed David. God's spirit did not indwell David. God's spirit was upon David. There's a big difference. In the 14th chapter of John's gospel, Jesus gives more visibility to this. He says to his disciples, he said, I must go away, but I'll send another, a comforter, and he will come to you. And you know him. The world does not know him, but you know him. And the reason you know him is because he has been with you. He's been upon you. He's empowered you. He's made you able to believe and trust in me. But he will be in you. Big difference. When you believe in Jesus Christ, God puts his spirit in you. His Spirit is upon you to enable you to believe. And then when you believe, He puts His Spirit in you. And when He puts His Spirit in you, His Spirit is there to stay. I am His. And I am sealed and I am marked. I'm secure. I can rest. No more running. No more fear. No more uncertainty. I can rest. God loves me. How can I know absolutely for sure? There's got to be one final test. I hear what you say. I read what the Bible says. How can I know for sure? Is there one final, is there one thing that I can, one heaven? Yes, there's one. There's one final acid test that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. And that's in 1 Corinthians. Paul says an astounding thing. He says, no person, no man, can confess Jesus is Lord except that the Holy Spirit enable him to do it. You mean all i got to do is say those three words, Jesus is Lord? That's it? That guarantees me I'm a Christian? Oh, Jesus is Lord. It's not mere words. You can pay a derelict five bucks and he'll say it all day. As long as you've got five bucks to pay him, he'll say it, right? Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Does he have any concept of what he's saying? Does he understand it? Does he mean it? No. Paul is saying that no person can say Jesus is Lord. In those three words is encompassed this whole book. In those three words are all the truths of the Bible. Jesus, fully man, is Lord, fully God. Jesus, His person and his work is identified. As a man, he came to live amongst us and tell us what God was like. As God, he came to save us. Emmanuel. That's what his name is. God with us. In that three-word sentence, is revealed all his work. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is it. There is no other. He came, he lived, he died on the cross for me, he was buried, he was resurrected, he ascended to the Father, he's coming back. It's all there. If I understand and believe all that, if I'm able to profess that with that kind of understanding, and if I believe it, Jesus is Lord, that is the acid test that the Holy Spirit lives in me. If I just say it and I just flip it off, the Holy Spirit's not in me. But when I say it, and I mean it, And I believe it. God's spirit is in me, and he has me in his grasp, not to crush me, but to save me, and to preserve me for all eternity. I'm secure. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. Your abundant grace to me. Lord, I thank you that in the face of my failures and my disobedience and my own sinfulness. Lord, you don't give up on me. You don't kick me out. I thank you, Lord, that you didn't save me because I was savable, because I was adorable. You saved me because you just chose to. You saved me because you wanted to. Incredible to me, Lord. I thank you for that. Father, I pray, too, as Paul prayed, that you would strengthen each of us in our inner being. Lord, and strengthen us that we might know and grasp your great love for us. That we are secure. That believing is sufficient. That it's not Jesus plus something else. I put my faith in him. I've thrown my whole life into his care. And on that basis, you have worked the unworkable changes. You've worked those in my life. You've changed me. You've worked a miracle. Thank you, Lord. I praise your name, and I love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.